Chapter Fifteen of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton. Chapter Fifteen. Arena. The dull pain which throbbed through Dalgard's skull with every beat of his heart was confusing, and it was hard to think clearly. But the colony scout, soon after he had fought his way back to consciousness, had learned that he was imprisoned somewhere in the globe ship. Just as he now knew that he had been brought across the sea from the continent on which Homeport was situated, and that he had no hope of rescue. He had seen little of his captors and the guards, who had hustled him from one place of imprisonment to another, had not spoken to him, nor had he tried to communicate with them. At first he had been too sick and confused, then too wary. These were clearly those others, and the conditioning which had surrounded him from birth had instilled in him a deep distrust of the former masters of Astra. Now Delgard was more alert and his being brought to this room in what was certainly the centre of the alien civilization made him believe that he was about to meet the rulers of the enemy. So he stared curiously about him as the guards jostled him through the door. On a dais fashioned of heaped-up, rainbow-coloured pads were three aliens, their legs folded under them at what seemed impossible angles. One wore the black wrappings, the breastplate of the guards, but the other two had indulged their love of color in weird, eye-disturbing combinations of shades in the bandages wrapping the thin limbs and paunchy bodies. They were, as far as he could see through the thick layers of paint overlaying their skins, older than their officer companion, but nothing in their attitude suggested that age had mellowed them. Dalgard was brought to stand before the trio as before a tribunal of judges. His sword-knife had been taken from his belt before he had regained his senses. His hands were twisted behind his back and locked together in a bar-and-hoop arrangement. He certainly could offer little threat to the company, yet they ringed him in, weapons ready, watching his every move. The scout licked cracked lips. There was one thing they could not control, could not prevent him from doing. Somewhere, not too far away, was help. Not from the mer-people, but he was sure that he had been in contact with another friendly mind. Since the hour of his awakening on board the globe-ship, when he had half-consciously sent out an appeal for aid over the band which united him with Tsutsuri's race, and had touched that other consciousness, not the cold alien stream about him, he had been sure that somewhere within the enemy throng there was a potential saviour. Was it among those who manned the strange flyer? those the mer-people had spied upon but whom he had not yet seen? Dalgard had striven since that moment of contact to keep in touch with the nebulous other mind, to project his need for help. But he had been unable to enter in freely as he could with his own kind, or with Tsutsuri and the sea-people. Now, even as he stood in the heart of the enemy territory completely at the mercy of the aliens, he felt more strongly than ever before, that another, whose mind he could not enter, and yet who was in some queer way sensitive to his appeal, was close at hand. He searched the painted faces before him, 
trying to probe behind each locked mask, but he was certain that the one he sought was not there. Only he must be. The contact was so strong. Dalgard's startled eyes went to the wall behind the dais, tried vainly to trace what could only be felt. He would be willing to give a knife oath that the stranger was within seeing, listening distance, at this minute. While he was so engrossed in his own problem, the guard had moved. The hooped bar which locked his wrist was loosened, and his arms, each tight in the grip of one of the warriors, were brought out before him. The officer on the dais tossed a metal ring to one of the guards. Roughly the warrior holding Dalgard's left arm forced the band over his hand, and jerked it up his forearm as far as it would go. As it winked in the light the scout was reminded of a similar bracelet he had seen. Where? On the front leg of the snake-devil he had shot. The officer produced a second ring, slipping it smoothly over his own arm, adjusting it to touch bare skin and not the wrappings which served him as a sleeve. Dalgard thought he understood. A device to facilitate communication. And straightway he was wary. When his ancestors had first met the mer-people, they had established a means of speech through touch, the palm of one resting against the palm of the other. In later generations, when they had developed their new senses, physical contact had not been necessary. However, here— Dalgard's eyes narrowed. The line along his jaw was hard. He had always accepted the mer-people's estimate of those others that their ancient enemies were all-seeing and all-knowing, with mental powers far beyond their own definition or description. Now he half expected to be ruthlessly mind-invaded, stripped of everything the enemy desired to know. So he was astonished when the words which formed in his thoughts were simple, almost childish, and while he prepared to answer them, another part of him watched and listened, waiting for the attack he was sure would come. You are who? What? He forced a look of astonishment, nor did he make the mistake of answering that mentally. If those others did not know he could use the mind-speech, why betray his power? I am of the stars, he answered slowly, aloud, using the speech of Homeport. He had so little occasion to talk lately that his voice sounded curiously rusty and harsh in his own ears, nor had he the least idea of the impression those few archaically accented words would have on one who heard them. To Dalgard's inner surprise the answer did not astonish his interrogator. The alien officer might well have been expecting to hear just that but he pulled off his own armband before he turned to his fellows with the spurt of the twittering speech they used among themselves. While the two civilians were still trilling, the officer edged forward an inch or so, and stared at Dalgard intently as he replaced the band. "'You not look same as others.' "'I do not know what you mean. Here are not others like me.' One of the civilians twitched at the officer's sleeve, apparently demanding a translation, but the other shook him off impatiently. "'You come from Sky now?' Dalgard shook his head. 
then realized that gesture might not mean anything to his audience. Long ago before I was, my people came. The alien digested that, then again took off his band before he relayed it to his companions. The excited twitter of their speech scaled up. You travel with the beasts. The alien's accusation came crisply while the others gabbled. That which hunts could not have tracked you had not the stink of the beast things been on you. I know no beasts. Dalgard faced up to that squarely. The sea people are my friends. It was hard to read any emotion on these lacquered and bedaubed faces, but before the officer once more broke bracelet contact, Dalgard did sense the other's almost hysterical aversion. The scout might just have admitted to the most revolting practices as far as the alien was concerned. After he had translated, all three of those on the dais were silent. Even the guards edged away from the captive, as if in some manner they might be defiled by proximity. One of the civilians made an emphatic statement, got creakily to his feet, and walked always as if he would have nothing more to do with this matter. After a second or two of hesitation, his fellow followed his example. The officer turned the bracelet around in his fingers, his dark eyes with their slitted pupils never leaving Dalgard's face. Then he came to a decision. He pushed the ring up his arm, and the words which reached the prisoner were coldly remote, as if the captive were no longer judged an intelligent living creature, but something which had no right of existence in a well-ordered universe. Beast friends with beast. As the beast, so shall you end. It is spoken. One of the guards tore the bracelet from Dalgard's arm, trying not to touch the scout's flesh in the process, and those who once more shackled his wrists ostentatiously wiped their hands up and down the wrappings on their thighs afterwards. But before they jabbed him into movement with the muzzles of their weapons, Dalgard located at last the source of that disturbing metal touch, not only located it, but in some manner broke through the existing barrier between the strange mind and his, and communicated as clearly with it as he might have with Tsutsuri. And the excitement of his discovery almost led to self-betrayal. Terran! One of those who traveled with the aliens? Yet he read clearly the other's distrust of that company, the fact that he lay in concealment here, without their knowledge. And he was not unfriendly. Surely he could not be a peaceman of Pax. Another fugitive from a newly-come colony ship? Dalgard beamed a warning to the other. If he who was free could only reach the mer-people, it might mean the turning point in their whole venture. Dalgard was furiously planning, simplifying, trying to impress the most imperative message on that other mind as he stumbled away in the midst of the guards. The stranger was confused. Apparently Dalgard's arrival, his use of the mind-touch, had been an overwhelming surprise. But if he could only make the right move, would make it. The scout from Homeport had no idea what was in store for him, but with one of his own breed here, and suspicious of the aliens, he had at least a slim chance. He snapped the thread of communication. Now he must be ready for any opportunity. 
Raff watched that amazing apparition go out of the room below. He was shaking with a chill born of no outside cold. First the shock of hearing that language, queerly accented as the words were, then that sharp contact, mind to mind. He was being clearly warned against revealing himself. The stranger was a Terran, Raff would swear to that. So somewhere on this world there was a Terran colony. One of those legendary ships of outlaws, who had taken to space during the rule of Pax, had made the crossing safely and had here established a foothold. While one part of Raff's brain fitted together the jigsaw of bits and patches of information, the other section dealt with that message of warning the other had beamed to him. The pilot knew that the captive must be in immediate danger. He could not understand all that had happened in that interview with the aliens, but he was left with the impression that the prisoner had been not only tried, but condemned, and it was up to him to help. But how? By the time he got back to the flitter, or was able to find Hobart and the others, it might already be too late. He must make the move, and soon, for there had been unmistakable urgency in the captive's message. Raff's hands fumbled at the grid before him, and then he realized that the opening was far too small to admit him to the room on the other side of the wall. To return to the underground ways might be a waste of time, but he could see no other course open to him. What if he could not find the captive later? Where in the maze of the half-deserted city could he hope to come across the trail again? Even as he sorted out all the points which could defeat him, Raff's hands and feet felt for the notched steps which would take him down. He had gone only two floors when he was faced with a grill opening which was much larger. On impulse he stopped to measure it. Sure he could squeeze through here, if he could work loose the grid. Prying with one hand, and a tool from his belt pouch, he struggled not only against the stubborn metal but against time. That strange mental communication had ceased though he was sure that he still received a trace of it from time to time, just enough to reassure him that the prisoner was still alive. And each time it touched him, Raff redoubled his efforts on the metal clasp of the grid. At last his determination triumphed, and the grill swung out, to fall with an appalling clatter to the floor. The pilot thrust his feet through the opening and wriggled desperately, expecting any moment to confront a reception committee drawn by the noise. But when he reached the floor the hallway was still vacant. In fact, he was conscious of a hush in the whole building, as if those who made their homes within its walls were elsewhere. That silence acted on him as a spur. Raff ran along the corridor, trying to subdue the clatter of his space boots, coming to a downward ramp. There he paused unable to decide whether to go down, until he caught sight of a party of aliens below, walking swiftly enough to suggest that they, too, were in a hurry. This small group was apparently on its way to some gathering, and in it for the first time the Terran saw the women of the aliens, or at least the fully veiled, gliding creatures he guessed were the females of the painted people. There were four of them in the group ahead, escorted by two of the males, and the high fluting of their voices resounded along the corridor, as might the cheeping of birds. If the males were colorful in their choice of body wrappings, the females were gorgeous beyond belief, 
as cloudy stuff which had the changing hues of Terran opals frothed about them to completely conceal their figures. The harsher twittering of the men had an impatient note, and the whole party quickened pace until their glide was close to an undignified trot. Raff, forced to keep well behind lest his boots betray him, fumed. They did not go into the open, but took another way which sloped down once more. Luckily the journey was not a long one. Ahead was light which suggested the outdoors. Raff sucked in his breath as he came out a goodly distance behind the aliens. Established in what was once a court surrounded by the towers and buildings of the city was a miniature of that other arena where he had seen the dead lizard things. The glittering, gaily-dressed aliens were taking their places on the tiers of seats. But the place which had been built to accommodate at least a thousand spectators now housed less than half the number. If this was the extent of the alien nation, it was the dregs of a dwindling race. Directly below where Raff lingered in an aisle, dividing the tiers of seats, there was a manhole opening with a barred gate across it an entrance to the sand-covered enclosure. And fortunately the aliens were all clustered close to the oval far from that spot. Also the attention of the audience was firmly riveted on events below. A door at the sand level had been flung open, and through it was now hustled the prisoner. Either the aliens still possessed some idea of fair play, or they hoped to prolong a contest to satisfy their own pleasure for the captive's hands were unbound, and he clutched a spear. Remembering far-off legends of earlier and more savage civilizations on his own world, Raff was now sure that the lone man below was about to fight for his life. The question was, against what? Another of the mouth-like openings around the edge of the arena opened, and one of the furry people shambled out, weaving weakly from side to side as he came, a spear in his scaled paws. He halted a step or two into the open, his round head swinging from side to side, spittle drooling from his gaping mouth. His body was covered with raw sores and bare patches from which the fur had been torn away, and it was apparent that he had long been the victim of ill-usage, if not torture. Shrill cries arose from the alien spectators as the furred one blinked in the light and then sighted the man some feet away. He stiffened, his arm drew back, the spear poised. But as suddenly it dropped to his side, and he fell on his knees before wriggling across the sand, his paws held out imploringly to his fellow-captive. The cries from the watching aliens were threatening. Several rose in their seats, gesturing to the two below, and Raff, thankful for their absorption, sped down to the manhole, discovering to his delight it could be readily opened from his side. As he edged it around, there was another sound below. This was no high-pitched fluting from aliens deprived of their sport, but a hissing nightmare cry. Raff's line of vision, limited by the door, framed a portion of scaled back, as it looked, immediately below him. His hand went to the blast-bombs as he descended the runway, and his boots hit the sand just as the drama below reached its climax. The furred one lay prone in the sand, uncaring. Above that mistreated body the human stood in the half-crouch of a fighting man, 
the puny spear pointed up bravely at a mark it could not hope to reach, the soft throat of one of the giant lizards. The reptile did not move to speedily destroy. Instead, hissing, it reared above the two as if studying them with a vicious intelligence. But there was no time to wonder how long it would delay striking. Raff's strong teeth ripped loose the tag-end of the blast-bomb, and he lobbed it straight with a practiced arm, so that the ball spiraled across the arena to come to rest between the massive hind-legs of the lizard. He saw the man's eyes widen as they fastened on him, and then the human captive flung himself to the earth, half covering the body of the furred one. The reptile grabbed in the same instant, its grasping claws cutting only air, and before it could try a second time, the bomb went off. Literally torn apart by the explosion, the creature must have died at once. But the captive moved. He was on his feet again, pulling his companion up with him, before the startled spectators could guess what had happened. Then, half carrying the other prisoner, he ran, not onward to the waiting raft, but for the gate through which he had come into the arena. At the same time a message beat into the Terran's brain. This way! Avoiding bits of horrible refuse, Raff obeyed that order, catching up in a couple of strides with the other two, and linking his arm through the dangling one of the furred creature, to take some of the strain from the stranger. "'Have you any more of the power things?' the words came in the archaic speech of his own world. Two more bombs,' he answered. "'We may have to blow the gate here,' the other panted breathlessly. Instead, Raff drew his stun-gun. The gate was already opening, a wedge of the painted warriors heading through, flamethrowers ready. He sprayed wide and on the highest level. A spout of fire singed the cloth of his tunic across the top of his shoulder, as one of the last aliens fired before his legs buckled and he went down. Then, opposition momentarily gone, the two with their semi-conscious charge stumbled over the bodies of the guards and reached the corridor beyond. End of chapter.